suppose it should be pretty obvious by now that I failed my real estate exam and am thus forced to rejoin you here this Sunday morning after a month-long sabbatical. Uh, I did walk into the building on Monday, uh, really for the first time in a month, and uh, had these thoughts. Uh, it made me ask the question more than once, what's really most important about a church? What makes a spiritually healthy church? Uh, what things do you have to have? What things do you want? What things should you shun and avoid at all costs? What makes a spiritually healthy church? I thought it would be a good idea before we launch back into Deuteronomy and conclude our study there this fall, and especially before we uh, reignite small groups next Sunday, that we spend a little bit of time working through that question, what makes a spiritually healthy church? And I don't know of a passage more important in all of the New Testament that describes what a spiritually healthy church does, what it means for them to be spiritually healthy, than Acts chapter 2. So you can see there in your notes, and you see uh, on the screen in front of you, the big idea that I think it emerges out of Acts chapter 2, at least the last few verses of that chapter is this. Spiritually healthy churches recognize the need to pursue God-glorifying community. Spiritually healthy churches recognize the need to pursue God-glorifying community. This is the task that we have been given in part here at Rocky Mount Bible Church. When we say we exist to proclaim God's glory and grace, we say that not only as individuals, but as a sum total community here as a church. This is obviously what the early church recognizes their responsibility as well. You remember, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends to heaven. He tells them that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and when he does, you will receive power, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And just a few verses later in Acts, the Holy Spirit does descend. They do receive that power, and the apostles begin preaching in Jerusalem. And not shortly after they began preaching vigorously there in Jerusalem, massive crowds gathered for the feast season there, a city that was only, say, 50 or 75,000 people swells to hundreds of thousands as worshipers and also gawkers come from around the Roman Empire to see what's happening there in Jerusalem. Peter is preaching, and in one day, thousands of people join the early church thousands. And so now we pick up here in Acts 2, starting in verse 42, right here, the last paragraph of the chapter, to see what happens when that group gets together. What do they think is important? What defines them as this monumental, spiritually healthy church here in the very earliest days of what it is that we have been assembled to be and to do? Starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father, I pray that you would help us not only to receive the lessons found in your word, but that we would receive them as inspired and authoritative and as inerrant, and that the Spirit would convict us in ways that would lead us into deeper holiness and obedience, and joyfully so, in Jesus' name, amen. If you take a look again at verse 42, you find right here from the get-go, there are four things that were emphasized in the very first church. Thousands of people have now joined under the authority and leadership of the apostles that Jesus said would be invested with the Spirit. They have been. The entirety of the believing fellowship has been. Then what did they do? Four things. Four things that they focused themselves on. First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. When they gathered together for worship, maybe also true in their homes, but when they gathered together as an assembly, these were the four priorities. It started with the apostles' teaching. They sat there as Peter and James and John, those who had been specifically commissioned by Jesus physically in his presence, taught all about what Jesus had taught them. You remember this is what Jesus did in the days after his resurrection. He gathered all the disciples together, and he said, let me tell you how the entirety of the Old Testament is about me. Let me tell you what the resurrection means for you. Let me tell you about what I will do when I come again. And the bulk of this information now disseminated to the apostles is the content of the preaching that they gave to these thousands now newly gathered here as the church. It's the first day of kindergarten. There are 3,000 kindergartners here gathered for the apostles' teaching. Now, uh, anyone who follows Jesus is a disciple. We know that's what it means to be a disciple, to follow someone intently, to be devoted to them. Not everyone is an apostle. Regardless of the billboards maybe you have seen around Rocky Mount when somebody claims to be an apostle or prophet or prophetess or emperor or czar or whatever it is they claim to be, right? Unless you are physically commissioned in the presence of Jesus, you are not an apostle. But these were. Now, uh, someone in the room is thinking pretty smartly here. All right, if we are to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, and you have just admitted that you're not an apostle, can we just cut this whole sermon part of the deal out of our worship service and get to which which faster than all the Methodists? Well, no. And here's the reason why. Because the apostles had by the leading of the Holy Spirit and by their own wit, done an incredible thing and took the teaching of Jesus and that which they conveyed to the early church and wrote it down. And so that's the book that we have in front of us. When we say that we are, just like them, 2,000 years later, devoted to the apostles' teaching, we are devoted to teaching this book. If at some point I or anyone else stands in this particular area here, I would call it the pulpit, but it's only got one beam. I think that makes it a lectern and starts teaching something else other than what the apostles taught, then, by all means, feel free to get out of here and head to Smithfields or wherever and beat the denominational folks out of their lunch. But we devote ourselves first to the apostles' teaching. 
They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. You know that word. You've heard it before. Here's what it does not mean. Uh, most of you, I know, grew up in Baptistic kinds of backgrounds, Baptist churches or similarly Baptist churches. Uh, some of you may have even grown up in Methodist churches and we're in the South, so I know that you know what uh, fellowship was used to refer to, right? We could maybe rephrase it this way. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to potlucks, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to covered dishes and to the breaking of bread and prayers, right? But we know that's not really what that word means. It's an interesting term that's found throughout the New Testament. It's koinonia, fellowship. It means more than just getting together and enjoying each other's company. It means unity in the work that we have been called to do. The exact same word is used in Philippians chapter 1 when Paul is praying for the Philippians. And I don't know if this came up or not. I was really grateful for the four men who preached in my place. And I didn't listen close enough to see if maybe this got included in all the observations there from Philippians 1. But when Paul is praying in the opening verses of Philippians to God, thanking God for all the things that the Philippians meant to him and what they had done for him. And he says, and I thank God for your participation in gospel work from the first day until now. And you know what word that is? Koinonia. Fellowship. Co-working participation in gospel work. That's what it is. Starting next Sunday night, we're going to get together. We're going to have small groups again. And you see those rosters have changed a little bit. You should have received a letter in the mail explaining in a little more detail what we're doing and why we're doing it that way. But something that may not have been clear in that letter and that I'm trying to make clear at this exact moment is this, is it's not just a time to get together and to enjoy each other's company. I hope that it is. I pray that it is. I enjoy your company. Almost all of you. <laughs> And some of you mine. But it's about the work. We have been called to world-changing, history-altering work to glorify our God who reigns over all things, who redeems all things, and we do it together. There are no lone rangers in fellowship. There are no singular agents in fellowship. We do it as a team. It's a team sport, what it is that we have been called to do. And the early church reflected that as an emphasis, the apostles teaching to fellowship. Thirdly, to communion. He calls it the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. Now, uh, in other places in Acts, we find that phrase, the breaking of bread, it almost assuredly revolves around uh, them eating meals together. We know that that's true. In this particular context, though, I think what Luke is talking about is that they had communion together that Jesus on the night in which he was taken away offered there at the last supper this bread symbolic of his body this drink symbolic of his blood reminding them in perpetuity this is what you've been called to remember to remember my sacrifice week in and week out, year after year, decade after decade, for 2,000 years, we have done exactly that. And this morning, we're going to do it again in just a few minutes, taking the bread and this juice from the vine and remembering the sacrifice that he makes that we might be redeemed, that we might know atonement to God.
and they devoted themselves to that. Not individually, mind you. I had one of the most bizarre experiences of my life a couple of years ago. A family invited us over for dinner. We had pasta, and it was great, and after dinner, uh, the husband comes out, and all the lights been dimmed, there's like a candle lit on the table, and they have bread, and he breaks bread. And they had wine, because, you know, not Baptist. And he said, and now we're just going to enjoy this table together. And uh, on the outside, it was, and on the inside, red flags, sirens, waving, no, 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 this is not something we do. Just alone in our homes. This is the table at which we gather where everyone in the fellowship of believers is offered the reminder that we exist in fellowship, all of us unified together, honoring Christ. It was weird to me. No less weird, though, than churches who only take communion, say, once or twice a year. I have a friend. He pastors in Texas. They take it right before Christmas, and that's it. Buddy, why do you only take it once a year? Well, we really want to keep it special. If you do it every week, then people would just get absolutely bored of the thing. It would lose all meaning. Well, I preach every week. Has that lost all meaning? We pray every week. Has that lost all meaning? We gather together in the assembly of those who have been redeemed by a holy God. Are you bored by that? Maybe we need more than an annual reminder of the fact that we were lost from God, separated from him because of our sin, and it took the blood of Jesus, his son, and nothing less to redeem us to him. Maybe we need that more than once a year. Maybe we need it much, much more often. Thirdly, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to communion, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to the prayers. Maybe that's a reference to the way that they recited some of the prayers that Jesus had taught them, not least of which is the Lord's Prayer. If you have never in your life memorized the Lord's Prayer, now is a good time for you to do so. It's the only time I think that the disciples asked Jesus explicitly to teach them something. And he teaches them how they can take advantage of the divine means whereby man can speak to God. Regardless, they prayed. They were a praying people. That's going to be a priority you'll see moving forward this fall at Rocky Mount Bible Church. That not only in our corporate gatherings, but also in our small groups, we're going to spend some time praying. More time than we have spent before. Praying for ourselves. Praying for each other. Praying for our community. Praying for our nation. Lord knows we need it. And praying for our world, all in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. We're going to spend more time praying. So those are the four things that they prioritized in the early church assembly. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, communion, and prayer. Now here's the important thing that we need to remember moving forward is that uh, each of these was considered essential for the early church. All of them. All four of them. Now, uh, the other day, um, uh, it was great. I was reminded of this. I had lunch at Smith's Restaurant with Jeff Everett. And you could go through, there's two ways to get food if you want to go have lunch at Smith's, okay? You can sit down at the table, they give you a menu, you can order off the menu like a rube. Or you can go through the line and you can get a meat and three. A phrase that I had never heard until I moved to the South. 
uh, you want meat and three. All right. So I walk up to the counter. I remember this years ago. The first time I walked up there, uh, you want meat and three? And I thought, you want me to meet you here in three minutes? Is that, do I need to go away? Do you need to cook some more food? <laughs> no, no, no. M-E-A-T. You get a meat and three. You get to choose one meat and three veggie sides. And this was fascinating, too. I learned what counts as a vegetable down here. So <laughs> green beans, collards, okra, vegetables. Banana pudding, also a vegetable, right? <laughs> Jello with little marshmallows inside, also a vegetable. Uh, I got to go see John tomorrow for my blood work. I just need to let you know ahead of time, I've been eating a lot of vegetables, right? <laughs> uh, meat and three. So you get to go through the line. You get to pick your meat. You get to pick your vegetables. There's a whole smorgasbord of things there to gather from. And I said to the woman, oh, so it's just all a cart. And she looked at me like, don't you dare speak French in here, son, right? <laughs> you get to go through and choose what you want. Here's the deal with the priorities of the early church. You do not get to choose what you want. They are all essential. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. Not just the ones you like, but all of them are essential to a spiritually healthy church. All of them. So there are some people who like coming here, and they're like, you know what, I'm just going to get a little bit of the sermon. That's what I want. I don't like to sing. I don't like to interact with the people. I'm going to get out. You know, it's me and mine. And ah, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. That's not how the body of Christ works. Some of you are saying, I love hanging out, but, you know, that whole, like, sermon stuff and Bible stuff is just not for me. That's not how this works. All of these, every week, every time we get together, that's how it works. And we find out how this changed the way they interacted with one another. Take a look at verses 44 through 46. Now, all who believed together had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as anyone had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They worshipped with these priorities when they got together. And you know what? It changed how they lived when they left this room. They started worshipping together, going to the temple together, singing together, praying together. They started eating food together which, by the way, is one of the greatest discipleship opportunities you will ever have in your life because everyone eats, at a minimum, three times a day, right? If you're going to eat and I'm going to eat, we might as well eat together and talk about Jesus. Now, what's interesting here is there's a whole bunch of um, otherwise capable people who have approached this passage through history and said, oh, this is fascinating, here we go. The biblical basis for communism, right? They sold all their stuff, they put it in one big pot, and everybody got an equal share, right? This is the gospel according to Bernie Sanders, right here, Acts chapter 2. Except there's a very important prepositional phrase right here in verse 45 that makes us know that this is not communism. This is not an economic system. We cannot anachronistically read Acts chapter 2 and get socialism out of this passage. And here it is, the last phrase. And they were selling all of their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This isn't communism. This is people taking care of each other and being willing to take care of each other in light of personal sacrifice. Extraordinary. The way they worshipped changed the way they lived outside of worship. 
And not only that, the way they worshiped changed their perception by the community. And day by day, verse 36, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with us, praising God and what? Having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They worshiped in such a way that the community around them could not believe what it is that God was doing through them. They had favor with all the people. In light of all the signs and wonders, many were left in all. Let me ask you. Think about the way that you worship. Think about the way that you come here, what you do while you're here, your devotion to these things, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, prayer, communion. Think about your personal devotion to those things. Think about the way that you, then having geared through those things, interact with one another. Your friendships with the people in this room. The opportunities that you have seized to serve the other people in this room. To cry with them when they cry. To rejoice with them when they rejoice. Thinking about Bobby and Brittany had baby Weston Friday morning. Thursday, Friday? Wednesday. Wednesday. Man, that baby's old. <laughs> Get that kid a job. Right? We rejoice with them as they rejoice. Now think about what you do. Now, now, does the unbelieving world who watches the way that you worship and watches the way that you treat one another, can you say that it is true of those you know in Rocky Mountain, Dorchus, and Red Oak, and Nashville, and that we have good favor with them? Can the unbelieving world watch our worshipful, God-glorifying community and see these priorities play out and want to know more? The way you worship changes the way the world respects and regards our God. This is not easy. Uh, I don't mean to pretend that it is, right? Um, I get this occasionally, not as much anymore, but once in a while, especially in the early days of the church, somebody would come into my office and they would say, you know, uh, Pastor, we have cliques. We have cliques in this church, and I just don't belong, and I'm, I'm just worried about where I fit in, and especially in those early days, there's like 30 of us, and I'm like, uh, there can't be a whole lot of clicks because there's not a whole lot of people here. <laughs> uh, and, and one individual in particular came to me, you know, I, I just, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm, on, I'm an outsider looking in, and I feel like I'm not a part of the, well, hey, I know so-and-so invited you over for dinner. Did you go? Well, no, I don't like going over to people's houses. Well, I, I know there are a couple of them are getting together and going to go have lunch, and you were invited to go to, I don't like that restaurant, and well, I see they're asking you, uh, have you ever asked them into your house? Oh, then I got a vacuum and I got a <laughs> brother. Maybe, just maybe, it's not everybody else. <laughs> maybe it's you. Maybe you're going to have to do something weird, like clean your house or not clean your house and still have people over. Maybe you're going to have to go have lunch at a restaurant that is not your absolute favorite. Maybe you're going to have to talk about something that you're not perfectly interested in. But if you're really invested in the community, you'll make time for the people around you. Too often we get stuck in this middle school dance kind of relationship here at the church. Remember 
eighth grade, big eighth grade dance, right? I was not allowed to go because we were still in the Fundy Church then, but I remember the other kids talking about it. All the boys are on one side and all the girls are on the other side and you got like one eighth grade hot dog with enough swagger to go across the floor and say, hey, you want to dance? And then they dance like this. And then he reached out like fingertips and just, you know, touched her on the side. All right. And that was the most dancing that happened that entire night. Same thing we find in churches over and over again. You want to hang out? I don't know. Maybe you want to hang out? Yeah. You're going to have to commit to the kind of community that the early church committed themselves to. What does this tell us about who God is? Well, first, it tells us that the Lord works through his church to bring glory and attention to himself. Look at verse 43. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Were they the ones with the invested power to change the world? No. But God was, and God was working through them. God can still be working through you to bring glory to himself. Rarely in history has God worked in a vacuum of human service. He has almost always allied himself with servants who are willing to magnify and glorify him. He chooses Adam and his wife Eve. He chooses Noah. He chooses Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He chooses Saul and David and Solomon. He chooses Isaiah and Jeremiah. And, and at some point, it's as if we started believing the lie that God only worked alongside people in the Bible. One of my favorite uh, titles, at least, for an organization is the Acts 29 Network. You ever heard that, of that group before, Acts 29? If you've ever read Acts, you know Acts only has 28 chapters. Uh, Acts 29 is a church-planting network, and I love that idea that they perceive that what they do is a continuation of the history of this early church. They're just doing the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. It's because they are a part of that story. We are a part of that story. God worked through David. He may also work through you. God worked through Abraham. He may also work through you. God worked through Ruth. He may also work through you. This is how God changes the world, at least in part. He finds a people, chooses them, equips them, commissions them, and sends them out. And that's exactly what was happening here in Acts chapter 2. He was doing all sorts of incredible things through the apostles. But it's important here to see, too. Not only did he do things through them, but it is the Lord who ultimately grows the church. Verse 47. The people were praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Who was doing the work? God was. Who was changing the hearts of the people there in Jerusalem? God was doing that. They weren't doing that. It's important that you understand the difference. Not only will this help you to lose a lot of the guilt and evangelism and outreach, but this will help to brighten your focus as you do what you've been called to do. Uh, not that long ago, I'm on YouTube and I'm watching one of the preachers whose name I won't mention except to say that they are way out in left field. And he kept using this phrase. And this is a phrase I heard a lot when I was younger, uh, soul winning, right? We're going to do some soul winning. You familiar with that? No G on the end. There's just an apology. It's soul winning. I've been doing soul winning a long time. I want a whole bunch of souls to the Lord. I've been doing a whole bunch of soul winning. And the more he talked, 
the more convinced I became that he thought that he was responsible for all those people who had come to the Lord. I wondered if he had ever read John 6, 44. Unless my father calls them and draws them to me, they will not know this relationship that is achievable by the work of the Son. John 15, maybe another example. You did not choose me, I chose you, Jesus says. It is God who adds believers to the body, not believers who add believers to the body. I don't care how dynamic your church is. I don't care how great your worship is or how compelling your preaching is or how fun the time that you spend together is. It is God who grows the church. Worship how you should worship. Respect the teaching of the apostles. Devote yourselves to prayer. Remember Christ at the table. Live in unified fellowship. Just do that and leave the church growing to the Father. Only he is able to grow a church. Embrace that and it will change your entire perspective. Now, what does it mean for us? Uh, this is 2,000 years ago. What does this actually mean for us? Let me just throw out three things here. First, our unity in the community we have here at Rocky Mount Bible Church is essential to the church's mission and the church's identity. That we are unified, that we are one, that we hold these essential things in common in our worship that changes and transforms our daily lives is essential so that we can do what we've been called to do. Go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. I want you to see what uh, we find here. Paul uh, extrapolating for us the importance of this community. He uses an intensely raw analogy here, starting in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12, he calls the church a body. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. Right? We have hands, we have feet, we have eyes, we have legs, we have arms. All of that one body, so it is in Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. There should be one word there that you've heard repeated over and over again. If you're making observations from Scripture and you find a word repeated that much, it's important. That word is one. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, what would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, what would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? And as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. We are not all the same. We are a very different group of people. Do you understand? I mean, obviously, there are some similarities among us here in this room, but a lot of us have very different backgrounds. There are people in this room who love opera and people in this room who love Led Zeppelin. <laughs> there are people in this room who grew up very, very poor. 
and people who grew up very, very rich. There are people whose parents let them do whatever they wanted to do, and there are people whose parents did not let them go to the eighth grade dance. <laughs> you will look across the room, I am sure, and find somebody in here and think to yourself at some point, they are an absolute alien from a different planet upon which the one I was born. <laughs> yep. <laughs> some of them root for the Buckeyes. Some of them root for they who shall not be named. We have not uh, kicked anyone out in a long time, but uh, <laughs> here's the point. Ready? Doesn't matter. Does not matter. You find this description of the early church there in Acts chapters 1 and 2, thousands of them, not only from different backgrounds, some of them were Jews, some of them weren't. <laughs> Imagine that lifestyle change. Uh, many of them didn't even speak the same language. They were from different parts of the earth doesn't matter. Because they were all about what? The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. All of them, together. That was it. And so Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 12, it's like a body. You are not allowed to say, well, I, I'm not like them, so I guess I'm not important. No, no, no. In fact, he, he goes uh, as far as to say this, and I love this, but as it is, verse uh, 18, God arranged. God chose. If you're here, it's not an accident that you're here. God arranged for you to be here. Did you exercise some choice in choosing the church? Absolutely you did. I'm not denying your free will, but I'm telling you concurrent to that is this. God chose you to be a part of his body. God chose you. You are not allowed to look in the mirror and say, I am unimportant at Rocky Mount Bible Church. Instead, you must remind yourself of this truth. God chose me to be here. I am essential to what's happening here. Do you know that? Do you know that when you wake up in the morning, you exist in part because God knows that we need you here? Similarly, I love this. He goes on in verse 21. This is the other side of that. The, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you nor again of the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, some of the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor, uh, verse 24, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. If there is somebody in this room who absolutely drives you nuts, you have zero things in common. You cannot imagine spending uh, a single hour alone with them at Smith's eating lunch. Be reminded of this. God chose that person for this body, and you need them. There's no appendix in the body of Christ. Do you understand? There's no part that you can cut out and it's just fine. We can live without it. Uh, that he uses a body metaphor is really telling. Sometimes we treat the other people in this room as if, yeah, they're there, we might need them one day. Uh, my grandfather's garage 
has not one of every tool, but 12, right? Now, uh, if you need to know where that particular uh, hammer is, uh, he may send you out there with instructions like the plot to national treasure. I don't know how you're going to find it. But, you know, if you, you know, put the special ink on the die and hold it up, you might find the, you know, hammer that you're looking for there in the garage. Sometimes when we say we need that person, we say that like grandpa has the tools. Yeah, we, we might need it one day. You know, maybe one day I need it. I'm glad I have it out there somewhere. I might need it one day. But that's not the analogy that Paul uses. Paul uses something intensely personal. He says it's a body. Now, I, imagine just for a moment... I was talking to Scott and Lisa Boynton this morning. They know exactly what's going on. Their friend is in surgery right now. Her, she's out. It worked. Five years ago, her kidneys stopped working. And she's been on dialysis, and she's been on a waiting list for half a decade. And last night, they got a phone call. We need you to come to Chapel Hill. Uh, we have a, a, a donor who matches with you perfectly. Now, that woman's going to get out of the hospital, and she's going to drink a glass of clear, cool water. And she's going to think about that water being filtered through her kidneys. You think she's going to take it for granted? You think she doesn't know that that is essential for her life? That's how you need to think about the other people in this room. Whether you're very close to them or far away from them, this is the truth. God has given them to you like an emergency organ given at the last possible minute to keep you alive. And we're in it together. That's what Paul's telling us here in 1 Corinthians 12. He's telling us that putting others before ourselves is crucial to demonstrating this kind of unity that wows the world. We're going to serve one another selflessly you ever consider the possibility that maybe the thing that bothers you here that you wish we did better that maybe he put you here for that very reason somebody might come to me it happens occasionally man I just wish we had better fellowship great invite someone into your home man we, we need more youth activities great I'm so glad that God sent you here to help us out with that you know, uh, brother, I just feel like uh, the, the spirit is something. We, we just need more prayer in here. Great. I'm so glad God sent you here to pray for and among us. This is how we will serve this body, acknowledging that the things that the spirit impresses upon our hearts may be the exact same things the spirit has employed us to do and equipped us in service to the body. Finally, I would encourage you, and I put this on the back of your notes, and you can take some time to look at it this week. The, the term one another, a great way to think about how we should interact with one another, that uh, term in Greek is alelon, one another. It's just a single word in Greek. Over a hundred usages, I think, in the New Testament, many of them laid out by the apostles to flesh out those lessons that started in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the beginning of this incredible community we know of as the church, and it just expands exponentially from there. It is no less than what we find in Acts 2, but it is a great deal more. And so we find through not only Paul's writings, but also Luke and James and John and Peter, here's what it means to live in community with one another. 
Let me encourage you, take one of those a day or stick that in your glove box of your car or stuff it in your purse and come back to that and think about, here's how I can serve my church body. Here's in better and greater detail how they have described for me and prescribed to me how I can foster the kind of community that exemplified the early church. Well, this morning we have heard the apostles teach. We have known a little bit of fellowship having gathered here. We have prayed and we'll pray again. But we're going to take just a moment and partake of the fourth emphasis of the early church. We're going to break bread together.